We're going to finish up John chapter 6 today, which is an exciting proposition. And what I want to do, uh, we're kind of streamlined the message. We want to respect your time and get you out of here at a decent time, um, especially with all the extra festivities we've had. Um, let me pray, and we'll get right into the text and right into our message. God, we are here today celebrating Your faithfulness and Your goodness, and we are glad that Your Word does not return to You void. It will accomplish what it was sent out to do. We are glad that Your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And we are glad, God, that You open our ears to hear Your words. God, whether we have been a believer for years, whether we're new believers, or whether this morning, God, we sit here this morning and we don't know You. We ask for Your Holy Spirit to move, to convict, to bring healing, and to show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, that we might set our affections on Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, if you have a Bible, if you could turn to John chapter 6. We'll be focused on verses 66 through 71 this morning, but we'll hit. We'll have to go back to get some context and uh, look at some different passages within John chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible and you're pretty adept with it, we're going to be seeing quite a few different verses this morning. So be, be, be ready for that. I'm going to have them up here too, I think, as much as I can. Um, technology tends to not agree with me, though, so many times. So we might run into times where it's not up there. So John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 66 through 71. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, we're going to do this like we've done it in the past. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, and then we're going to pull out some points of application. Um, before I do that, I think I have mentioned here before the Amplified Bible. Is anybody familiar with the Amplified Bible? Anybody not familiar with the Amplified Bible? Mother not familiar with... Okay, you get a flower if you're a mother and you've never heard of the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible takes a bunch of... Um, adjectives and explanation and puts it in the text to help you understand it. I'm going to read this passage in the Amplified Bible. I don't have that up here. I know that. And you're going to hear and, and, and a lot in the Amplified Bible, but it's going to be necessary. We're going to refer back to it. So let me read it without any further ado. <clears throat> After this, many of His disciples drew back, returned to their old associations, and no longer accompanied Him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? And do you too desire to leave me? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, the message of eternal life. And we have learned to believe and trust. And more we have come to know surely that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil of the evil one and a false accuser? He was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was about to betray him, although he was one of the twelve. Now, let's start back in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, before we jump into that, let me recap chapter 6 for you real quick. And it's a lot. Again, you're talking about 71 verses. That's a big chapter, right? At the beginning of the chapter, which actually, oddly enough, I got to speak that Sunday. We looked at verses 1 through 21. Jesus fed a big crowd. Anybody remember how many people were possibly in that crowd? Could be up to 20,000 people. Say it again. 20,000. It's the feeding of the 5,000, but we say it could have been 20,000 because the 5,000 were just the men. And it says that doesn't count the women and the children. So Jesus starts out the chapter. He sits down to talk with His disciples and this huge crowd assembles of about 20,000 people or so. And Jesus feeds them with what? Five loaves and two fish? Okay, that's crazy. That's insane. And they had 12 baskets left over. So then Jesus takes His disciples and says, get in the boat, go to the other side. He didn't want them caught up in the crowd. And He sends the crowd away. They get The disciples get out on the water and there's a storm. It's like 3 in the morning. Jesus comes walking on the water and He's going to pass them by. They're scared to death. He says, don't be afraid. I am is the literal translation. They worship Him. They get to the other side of the lake. The people who were fed come to find Him there the next day. He says He's the bread of life. This is kind of what Hamlet talked about last week. He tells them to eat His flesh and drink His blood. And then He says, no one can come to Him unless it is granted to Him by His Father. Now we get verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. <clears throat> so get, get this picture real quick. Less than 24 hours ago, Jesus is in a crowd of 20,000 people. And then He says some stuff and it whittles down really, 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 really small. After this, I'm going to have to go back to verses 60 through 65 to see what after this was all about. When many of His disciples heard it, and that's when He was saying, I'm the bread of life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So, what I want to figure out is what made them not want to walk with Him anymore? Because remember... Remember the prophet? Prophet, you know, everybody was excited when Jesus was feeding the crowd and they, they loved Him so much that they followed Him to the other side of the lake. So you've still got this big crowd, but then He starts saying stuff. 
He starts talking about being the bread sent from heaven. He starts saying they've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then we get in this passage. And so all these hard statements, which of them caused them to stumble? All of them? Probably, but this last one is pretty tough, isn't it? And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Is this a hard saying? You bet it is. Who's saying it? Everybody's on mute. Is this thing on? Who's saying this? Who is the he in this sentence? Jesus. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless what? It's granted him by the Father. Who is instrumental in people coming to Jesus? It's the last two words of the sentence. The Father. Is that hard to receive? I don't know why, but it seems like every time I get up to speak, something like this is in the text. And I, I really, I struggle with the mentality. I, I struggle with this picture of people saying, oh, it's Jason, oh, it's election again. I really struggle with that. I really do. Because I don't want to discredit this doctrine by it being me who's saying it all the time. So please hear me say that. And I really kind of wanted to avoid this because of that, but, but I'm not going to. We're not going to steer past this. This is a hard saying. And it caused many people to no longer walk with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. I really believe this is the statement that finally pushed them away. You're like, well, fine. Maybe the Father isn't drawing me. I don't want to follow you anyway, freak. Talk about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. It's crazy. We're going to leave you. We're going to get out of here. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now back to our verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. The literal Greek of that passage that says turned back and no longer walked with Him, and I think this is so important. It literally means many of His disciples went back to what lay behind. They went back to what lay behind. And the Amplified Bible put it like this. After this, many of His disciples drew back returned to their old associations. Now what was behind, what was back there, was just normal, everyday life. The rut. The oh well, whatever, life. Now can you feel the emotion of what they had just done? As Jesus was ministering and teaching, an excitement had been building. Remember, prophet, 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 Passover, prophet, Moses, Messiah, they're building and they're getting excited. A following was being assembled. Again, we're talking about a crowd of 20,000 people, possibly. Could it possibly be that the Messiah was here? And then he starts saying things like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them. And it's like there's just like a balloon with the air going out of it. And they go from excitement 
and pinnacle experience, miracles, wow, Messiah. Oh. And life just goes back to normal. Anybody ever been there? You have this mountaintop experience with God and God blesses and God, and then the next day you wake up and life's just life again. And what, do you, what is our tendency? Our tendency is to go back to our old associations. Our tendency is to go back to what's always worked, what's always been easiest. Even though we don't necessarily like it, we go back to what's easiest. Life goes back to normal. The thrill, the joy, the excitement is gone. These guys, this so-called Messiah, in their mind just went off the deep end and started talking about His flesh and His blood and eating and drinking and well, I couldn't come anyway because the Father must not be drawing me. Oh well, I figured it was too good to be true. And hope takes a crippling blow. Reality gets uglier and more real. That's what happens. Let me go to verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? So now Jesus has chased all of the crowd away. And he's gone from 20,000 people to 12 guys. Somebody got a calculator? Let me tell you what the percentage of that is. 0.00055. That's what percentage of his crowd is left. 0.00055. Jesus lost 99.99. Nine, four, five, five percent of his crowd. Just like that. And he looks at the twelve guys, and what's he say to them? Guys, please don't leave. Guys, if you stick around, I'll help you out. Guys, don't leave me. I don't want to be here by myself. That's not what he says. What's he say to them? You want to leave too? Do the last point oh 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 five five percent of you want to leave too? I really wish I could hear the tone of Jesus' voice in that statement. I wish I knew what he was trying to inflect there. I wish I knew how he felt. I wish I knew what his words were really feeling. Was he mad? Was he despairing? Was he mad? Was he sarcastic? You want to leave too? I don't know. Either way, he's checking their motives and he's trying to see if they've got that stick to that they're going to need to follow him. Because what's coming up? The cross, death. That's what's coming up. And so he looks at him and says, okay, the rest of these 19,988 people have left. It's going to keep happening. It's, going to, it's not just going to be people leaving, it's going to be people getting violent toward us. Do you want to leave too? Now, it's a test. It's a test for them. Look back at the rest of the chapter. Look at the other tests that they've already been through. He sits them down to teach them. He looks at Philip and he sees a crowd of 20,000 people. What do you ask Philip? Where are we going to find bread to feed all these people? And it says that he was saying that to test Philip. Philip's like, we spent a year's wage and bought bread. We still wouldn't have enough to give him just a little bit. Andrew steps up and says, got a kid here with five loaves and two fishes, but what's that? 
for all this. And Jesus says, have them sit down. So they failed that test in my mind because they didn't, they didn't grasp what he was doing so that Jesus knew what he was about to do. Okay, Then he puts them in a boat. He sends them out on the waves. They're freaking out. They're scared to death. They think they're going to die. Then Jesus walks on the water and he's getting ready to walk by the boat. What's it say? It says they're scared to death. And he says, reveals himself to them in the midst of that test and says, don't be afraid. I am. Then he brings them to the other side. The crowd comes back and he starts just hammering with hard sayings. Another test. Another test. And what he's doing through this process is getting a hold of the disciples and saying, if you will stick with me, I will reveal myself to you. If you will wait it out, if you'll wait out the crowd, if you'll wait out the storm, if you'll walk with me on the water, if you'll come over here, and if you will listen to the hard sayings, I promise I'll reveal myself to you. He's been teaching them. He's been testing them. He sends them into the storm. And he has every intent of running off everybody that he can run off that's not going to stick with him and trust him through the process. And now he's down to 12 guys. And, and Hamlet talked last week about how, uh, what, what was this saying? I can't remember now. How to annoy people and how to, it was a play on the, how to, how to lose friends and annoy people. That's what Hamlet talked about last week. And that's what Jesus was doing. And that's, I mean, he had every intention of running people off. And I think he would have gone as far as to say, you guys are welcome to leave too. Which is hard. That's really, really hard. And he lays it all on the line. Now, keep in mind what they'd seen in the last 24 hours, and now their rabbi is asking if they want to leave him like the crowd had. And feel the weight of that. Do you want to leave too? Because we're going to get back to that when we get into application. Go back to verse 68. We're going to read 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, Peter. Peter has good times. Peter has not so good times. This is a good time for Peter. This is a good day for Peter. Peter's, Peter something's going on with Peter. And just like the rest of us, his ups and downs, but this is a good one. In a desperate, unashamed response, Peter says, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now maybe Peter's stomach was still full from the fish and the loaves or their leftovers because they had 12 baskets full of leftovers. Maybe his sandals were still wet from walking on water. Maybe in his heart and mind he could still hear Jesus saying, Don't be afraid, I am. Regardless of why, regardless of how, he confesses here much the same thing that he will later confess in Matthew 16, 16, which happened just a little bit from here. In Matthew 16, 16, he makes a statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Put that beside our text here, and Peter says this, you have the words of eternal life, which if you jump back to verse 63 in John 6, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. So it's like Peter's catching up and just these bits and pieces, like, hey, I remember you saying this. So he's saying, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So out of 20,000 people, it sounds like one guy gets it. One guy's been listening. 
I, can't, I don't know what the other 11 are standing there doing. Uh, yeah, Peter, won't you say something? <laughs> because you're good at this sometimes. Go ahead and say something. And Peter does. And he makes a good confession. It's a bold confession. And it's vital to them staying with Jesus. If Peter's confession is true, then they have every reason to stick it out with Jesus even when he is running everybody else off. And listen, even when his words are hard and don't seem to make sense. If Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it'll be worth it to stick it out when things aren't making sense, right? Verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, the passage we're looking at closes with Jesus basically saying he knows that one of the twelve would do the devilish work of betraying him. So out of that 20,000 member crowd, Jesus comes down to 12 and really He comes down to 11 because He looks at the 12 and says, one of you guys is a devil. And then He makes sure that all of them know who chose that devil. Who was it? Anybody remember who chose that devil? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with pleases. Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Who chose that devil? Thank you. Jesus did. Who chose that devil? The answer is not different. You're like, what are you saying? I'm saying Jesus chose that devil to do that work. Let that sink in for a second because it's going to be real important when we look at our application points. Jesus Himself chose that devil. That's a bold statement. And it's loaded with implications. Jesus told His disciples on more than one occasion, you did not choose Me, but I chose you. And here He says, I chose you guys and one of you is a devil. Now that's our passage. But now let's look at the implications of this and I've got four points of application. First, sticking with where we are right now. Listen, please listen to me. Jesus Christ is sovereign over evil. Jesus Christ is sovereign over the devil. And He uses them for His purposes. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is sovereign over evil and the devil and He uses them for His purposes. And that's good news. Who chose Judas? I'm going to ask you again. You guys are on mute. Come on. Jesus chose Judas. He says it plain and clear. And it wasn't like Jesus was surprised in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas showed up with some soldiers and said, What? Judas? One of my guys? No. 
Here, probably months before His betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, Jesus says that He chose the one who would betray Him. And He calls Him a devil. Jesus chose that devil to fulfill the will of God. Wrestle with this. And I could highly recommend this book, Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Christ by John Piper. Now, Spectacular Sins and their global purpose in the glory of Christ. Whose will was it that Jesus was crucified? It was God's. Was it a horrible sin that Jesus was crucified? Yeah. Who was sovereign over that sin in seeing that Jesus got crucified? God. God is not hampered by sin. Wrestle with that. That's hard word. But it's good word. God is not the author of evil, though. You say, well, it sounds like He is. No. Worship God for His sovereignty over evil, but be clear about this. God is not the author of evil. The best explanation that I've ever heard of this came from Don Flegger, actually. And it says that God's not the author of evil, but He can ordain to use evil for His purposes. Just, it makes your stomach crawl, doesn't it? You're going, what? What does that mean? Let me give you an example of what this looks like. In the Bible, again, we, we want to use Scripture. 1 Kings 22, 19-23. What's going on here? You've got King Ahab from the northern kingdom of Israel, King Jehoshaphat from the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're thinking about going out to war with the nation of Syria. Okay? That's what's going on. And they're bringing the prophets in to say, hey, tell us what God says about us going to war with Syria. And there's one prophet who steps up and says something. Listen to this. This is disturbing. I hope it's disturbing. I hope you're not like, oh, that's cool. They're saying, should we go out to war? Tell us, Micaiah. Micaiah, yeah. What do you say, Micaiah? Because all the, all, the, all the other prophets are saying, oh, go out, you're, you'll gore the Syrians. Here's some, here's some horns that's going to show how you're going to gore the Syrians. And I say, what about, is there anybody that speaks for the Lord? Micaiah steps up. And Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the host of heaven standing beside Him on His right hand and on His left. Well, okay, I'm good with that. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramath-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And the Spirit said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he, being God, said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Hmm. Who did the enticing? The lying spirit did the enticing, right? Who ordained that that lying spirit should do that? God. The Lord. Listen, God is absolutely sovereign or He's not sovereign at all. He is either sovereign over all things or He's not sovereign over anything. That includes evil. That includes the devil. That includes bad. 
And God can ordain that evil, the devil, bad, can be used to accomplish His purposes. I hope you wrestle with that. I hope you don't just take my word for it. Heaven forbid. Go out and be a lying spirit and put it in the mouth of the prophets. God said, you go do that. I don't understand how all that works. I don't get it. But that leads us to our next point application. Number two, are we ready in light of this thought, in light of this truth, to trust God when we don't understand Him? Almost 20,000 people didn't in our passage. And they walked away. Because there will be times, will there not, when we don't understand something about who God is, what He's doing, or the truth that the Scriptures teach us. There will be times. Anybody ever been confused by something Scripture said? Anybody ever been confused by a situation or circumstance in your life and you're saying, God, where are you? What's going on? Will you choose to trust Him in those times? Because if not, you're going to walk away like these other 19,988 people did. If you can't trust God when you don't understand God, you will not walk with God. You won't do it. And that's by design. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Listen, listen. God reserves some things for Himself. And you're never going to understand them. They're the secret things. They belong to Him. But God, in His secret counsel, is working things together for His glory and for our good. We have to believe that. We have to trust that. The problem with the deserting disciples was that they didn't understand Jesus calling Himself bread and prescribing His flesh and blood as true food and drink. They didn't understand Him talking about ascending to where He was before. They didn't understand when He said that they couldn't come to Him unless the Father drew them. They didn't understand and they walked away. We bicker about doctrines and we fight to be right and we condemn people that we think are wrong and then something comes up and God confounds us with a wrinkle that we weren't expecting and it knocks the wind out of us. And we start to question God instead of questioning ourselves. Will we trust God when what we just knew that we knew isn't true? Are we willing to trust Him to be bigger, smarter, and better than we are? Are we willing to subjugate our will to His even when we don't understand or even know what His will is? If you don't have that thought pattern stuck in your mind, you will walk away. The other option is point three. And this may be the most tricky one. You don't trust God, so what do you do? You do what the other disciples do. You turn back. Now listen, I'm not talking about backsliding. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I firmly believe, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm not talking about losing your salvation here when I say turn back. I'm saying you're going to do what the crowd did and you're going to go back to your former associations. 
I believe, and I believe that we as believers can choose to walk away and walk our way even as believers. That to me is the biblical teaching of free will. I have a free will. I'm a free moral agent as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a born-again son of God. I have a choice to either follow Him or not. As followers of Jesus, as those who have been born again to a living hope in the name and the person of the living Christ, we can choose to draw back and return to our old associations. And to me, what so much of American Christianity is about is about us adding Jesus to our former associations and making that choice every day. Say, you know what? Jesus, I love you. I'm going to go back here where it's a little bit normal. I'll follow Jesus. I'll get excited about who He is and what He's doing and what He's doing in my life, but then life happens. We get caught up in existing. We get swallowed up in the everyday and the mundane that we sing about. And we return to our old associations. Family, work, leisure, health problems, food, sports, boys, girls, houses, cars, carpet, toothpaste, whatever. And we just forget. I've just returned back to where I came from. And I'm just caught up in life. And we choose that. We choose to not make Jesus the central focus of our lives, which we'll get to that in a minute. All we can focus on is what is right in front of us at the moment. Anybody guilty of that? Just right. It's like we're horses with blinders on and all we can see is what's right here and we lose sight of everything else because we choose to. This is so pressing. This is so important. And we forget, hey, wait a second. I'm called to something bigger. I'm called to something grander. I'm called to something more important than just what's right here. And it all runs together and draws our focus off the one who demands our first and our best. The Amplified Bible put it like this, remember, after this many of His disciples drew back and returned to their old associations and no longer accompanied Him. The ultimate question here is, are you accompanying Him? We pretty consistently talk of Jesus walking with us and never leaving us or forsaking us. We just sing about it. Never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. And that's right and that's biblical and that's good. But the question that I get out of this is, are we accompanying Him? He's still working in this world. Are we intent on watching where He is headed and following Him to that destination? Or are we just asking Him to bless us where we are? God be with me. Jesus walk with me. And Jesus is saying, follow me. We ask Jesus to follow us around like a puppy. And He's saying, no, I've got something to do, but you've got to follow Me. But we turn back to our old associations and expect Him to trail around behind us. And guys, this is hard. Do we just follow Him when He's filling our bellies, when things are going our way, and then turn back when we don't understand, when it's hard, or when it's just boring? Anybody ever been bored following Jesus? Because I've taken my eyes off and I'm just looking at what's right here in front of me. Beware the danger of turning back Christian. So, how do we not turn back? It's our last point of application. Number four. 
And let me, let me recap those real quick. The first one is Jesus is sovereign over evil and the devil and uses them for His purposes. The second one is, are we ready to trust God, especially when we don't understand Him? The third one is, have we turned back? And this last one. This last one is the answer to all the rest of them. Do we know Jesus as the you alone that Peter talked about? Peter said, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Let me open up my soul for a second. It's a cobwebby, dirty, ugly place sometimes, but let me, let me do this for you. A year ago, we joined two groups of people together to form one body of one church, right? There have been times in that year when I've asked myself, what if we closed these doors? What if we didn't do this anymore? How would it affect the people that meet here? How would it affect me? What, would I care? Would you care? Would they care? Or would they just go find another church? Would they just go somewhere else? And It's what they should do. They should go find a group of people to meet with. But would it grieve anybody if we stopped doing this together on Sundays? There are thousands of churches out there. There are more churches in America than McDonald's and Walmarts combined in America. That's a lot. What was it McDonald's says now? Billions and billions served. More churches than McDonald's and Walmarts together in the nation. You've got options, guys. You know what I would absolutely positively love for me and for us is to say, you know what? This is it. This is my only option. These people, not, not Providence Bible Church, forget the name, forget the title, but I want you to look around and I want you to look at these people and I want you to feel this is my only option. These people are the people that God has placed me together with. And commit yourself not to Providence Bible Church, but to this group of people. And say, I have no other option. Where else would I go? I'm a part of this body. I'm a vital part of it. And you are a vital part of this body. That was an aside. Sorry. Do we know Jesus as the you alone? Is Jesus our only option? This is what separates the deserters from the disciples. Peter and the other ten disciples, again, it's eleven because Judas was a traitor standing in the midst of them, had reached a place where they had no other option but Jesus. He says, where else would we go? You alone. You alone. You alone. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, and the emphasis is, you alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me read the Amplified Bible again. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, the message of eternal life, and we have learned to believe and trust, and more, we have come to know surely that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. In our lives, guys, we have so many options to lean on, to trust in, to love and to serve. So many options to distract us and to disappoint us. Have we as followers of, as disciples of Jesus Christ, come to know Him as our all in all. 
it can seem a little easy to say that, yeah, Jesus is my all in all. We've the old Dennis Jernigan song, You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. We've probably all sang that. You're going, I've never heard that song in my life. Doesn't matter. It's a song. And we've sung it. So it's easy to say that, but really, what does it mean? Really? I'm going to ask you point blank this morning, Christian. If you're not a believer here this morning, I'm not talking to you right now. I'll get to you in a minute. Is Jesus Christ everything to you? Everything. Can we repeat Peter's words? Do we have nowhere else to go? Do we know that He alone has the words of eternal life? Do we know that He is the Christ? Do we know that He is the Son of the living God? Because if we do, and if we can honestly say that, it changes everything in your life. It means that His words are life to us, which changes how we approach the Bible, right? If His words are life, that would probably change the way that you approach the Bible that you haven't picked up in six weeks. Oh, this is a... This is one of those legalistic messages. No. No, no. What I'm saying is, if you believe that His words are life and are eternal life, it will change the way that you pursue the Bible. It's not going to be an option. It's not going to be something you check off your list. It's going to be life to you. Man doesn't live by bread alone, right? It means that God's own Son has given His life for us and... He has given His life to us. It means that God Himself is living His life in us and through us. Now I'm going to ask you the question, is He? Is God Himself living His life through you? Because if we trust that Jesus is the only option, that's what's going to happen. It means that I want nothing else. Nothing else else. The psalmist said it best. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now doggone it people, I can't say that. And be honest, I want to say that. I want to be that way, but there are a lot of things that I want. And I've got to confess that. I've got to repent of that. Whom have I in heaven but you, Jesus? Where else would I go? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. And I'm pretty fond of my flesh. I like to be healthy. I like to live life and feel good. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That means if I have nothing else and I have God... I have everything I want. The fact that I have everything I need is implied in that. And I think we're quick to say, yeah, God gives me everything. God is everything I need. Is God everything that you want? Because let me tell you what, that's exactly what Peter was saying. We've got nowhere else to go. We've got no other option. Can we say that as individuals? Can we say that as a church? I'm not mad. You're sad because I can't say that and be honest. It means that the focus of my life is the same as Paul's when he said so eloquently in Philippians chapter 3, 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Click. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These words are monstrous. I mean, those are monstrous words. I have lost everything so that I may gain Christ. And all that stuff that I lost is like rubbish. The literal wording is dung. It's crap. It's poop. I could use a stronger word, but I won't. Do we get that? Do we get that everything else in our life is rubbish compared to Jesus? Because that's what Peter was saying. We've got nowhere else to go. We've got no other option. Can I honestly say these words describe my life? Can you honestly say that they describe your life? Do I understand that God is sovereign over all aspects of my life, both the good and the evil? Do I trust Him even when I don't understand Him or His ways? Or have I turned back? What would I say if Jesus looked at me today and said, do you want to leave too? Well, it's Mother's Day, God. we got plans. Nothing wrong with having plans. Nothing wrong with enjoying your mother and your family. But do you recognize God as the giver of those gifts and worship Him and say, I have nothing apart from you? We need to honestly evaluate these questions in light of this passage. What options do you still have? Or are we down to our last one, our best one, our only one? If we're not there, will we be honest with ourselves and address it head on? Because our danger is that we really want to have it both ways. We want to have Jesus as our everything and have everything too. And you can't, guys. You can't do it. It makes you double-minded. James 1.8 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And I feel like that verse is my autobiography. Because I've got so many other things that I want besides just Jesus. And I don't understand it and it's hard, but I come to God and say, God, help me to understand it. Please help me. This resonates with me so deeply, that verse there. Trying to be both godly and worldly. Trying to worship Jesus as my everything while holding other people and things, holding on to them for dear life. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. Worship Him for your blessings and see Him as the destination for every word of praise. There is no other viable option. Now, I want to close with this. Well, something that this that leads into something else. When Elijah was addressing the people of God before his contest with the prophets of Baal, this is what he said. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, 
how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And what did they say? Did they make the confession that Peter made? No. And the people did not answer Him a word. Elijah stands up and says, Today, like Joshua, years before, Today, choose who you will serve. Is it the Lord? Then serve Him. Is it Baal? Then follow Him. And he gets crickets. Chirp, 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 chirp. Is it the Lord or is it Baal? Is Jesus your everything or is He not? You cannot leave this place today without answering that question. One way or the other, you will answer it. Now, unbeliever sitting here this morning, you've got to answer this question too. All the Christians are going, thank God, He's off me. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you've got to answer this question. Either the Lord is God or He's not. And you've got to make a confession and say, I believe that He is. I believe that He is the Messiah, the only Son of God. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that I was born a sinner. And my only hope of heaven is that Jesus Christ took my punishment upon Himself on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago and that God was pleased to crush Him instead of me and that if I stood before God and He asked, why should I let you into my heaven? My only answer would be because of Jesus. But you can't go on limping between two opinions. Believer or unbeliever. And the people did not answer him a word. Let me finish. I will finish with this, okay? John Piper writes this. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter said. You alone have the words of eternal life. Listen. This Piper writes this. In other words, we may not have all the problems solved. The problems of following Jesus and saying yes to His teaching and His Lordship and His saving work. He may confuse us at times and baffle us with things He says and provoke us and Jesus will offend us. And yet, we say with Peter, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. No one ever spoke like you. No one ever acted like you. No one ever so strong and meek, so tough and tender, so authoritative and gentle, so profound and simple, so powerful and so willing to be killed, so just and so willing to be treated unjustly, so worthy of honor and so willing to be dishonored, so deserving of immediate obedience and so patient with people like us, so able to answer every question and so willing to remain silent under abuse, so capable of coming down from the cross and flaming judgment and so committed not to use that power. He goes on to say this, Where shall we go? There has never been anyone like you, Jesus. No one ever taught like you teach. No one ever loved like you love. And this is how thousands of people come to Christ. Not without tremendous struggles as they look around for a philosophy of life, a God, a little g-God, a world without a big g-God, a world without a sovereignty of God, a world with some kind of explanation that makes more sense of more things, and they come back like a prodigal son and they say, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This morning, afternoon, Jesus looks and says, do you want to go too? I pray that my confession 
your confession, our confession would be, where else would we go? You alone, Jesus, have the words of eternal life and we have come to know and come to believe that you are the Holy One of God and I have no other option. Let's pray. God, I have lived most of my life limping between two opinions. I have lived most of my life as a double-minded man, unsteady in all of my ways. And today, Jesus looks at me and says, do you want to leave too? So many times, God, I've gotten the words right, but the action's completely wrong. I've said, no, 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 I would never leave you or forsake you, Jesus. And then for a crumb of bread or for a dollar, I choose my own path, go my own way. God, would you galvanize us? Would you solidify us as your people to choose Jesus as our only hope, as our only option? This is not something that we do better or try harder when we get there. God, it has to be a work of Your Holy Spirit. Jesus would tell Peter later, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Father in heaven, would You reveal it to us? You are sovereign over us. You are sovereign over evil. And we don't understand everything. We don't get everything. But in the midst of it, God, would we continue to look at Jesus Christ, high and exalted, no longer the crucified Christ, but the risen, exalted Christ, seated at Your right hand, would You lift our eyes to Him? And may we know by the power of Your Spirit that He is our only option. And for those who sit here this morning, God, that do not know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, would You, by the power of Your Spirit, convict them of their sin? And may You show them, God, that their only option, their only choice for forgiveness and redemption lies in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They have no other hope. They have no other way. They cannot earn their way into heaven. They can't do better. Holy Spirit, would You convict them of that? And would You convict Your people of our love of other things and draw us all to Yourself? We need Your help to make the good confession. We ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.